Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship with God. Scripture teaches that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. When we trust him, we have eternal life that can never be lost. It is a permanent gift. God does not take back or reverse that which he does in regeneration. However, when we sin, we break fellowship with God. We quench that ongoing ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in our life, whereby he produces spiritual growth. And so the recovery is simply a grace process of admitting to God that which we have done. And as we confess or admit, acknowledge our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us not only the sins that we have confessed, but all sin, and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We're immediately restored to fellowship, and God the Holy Spirit begins to, again, to produce spiritual growth in our lives. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer before we begin our study to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 to make sure you're ready to focus, concentrate on the Word, that you're back in fellowship so that God the Holy Spirit can make this a profitable time for you in your spiritual growth. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we have your word, that you have revealed yourself to us, that this is not the simple record of human beings who have had religious experiences down through the ages and have written them down, but they are the specific revelation of yourself to us, that you have so overridden the uh, human frailties of the authors in order to guarantee that that which they write would be, that which they wrote would be without error and that it would record for all posterity that which you have done in history, and that your will and your thinking would be preserved for us, that we might know who you are, and that we might know with certainty how to have a relationship with you. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would strengthen us, encourage us as we go, and that we might have a greater appreciation for our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've been studying in the book of Revelation. We've been in chapter 5, which is a picture of a heavenly scene of worship as the Lamb of God has come forward to take the scroll, the scroll that represents the title deed for planet Earth, that he has come forward to take this, this scroll so that the Lamb of God, who is the Messianic King, the King of all the earth, who will take take the domain back from Satan, uh, will do that as the scroll is open. And as he takes the scroll, the heavenly courtroom bursts into praise. The 24 elders, the four living beings, and the angels sing praise to the Lamb. And in verse 9, we read that they, and in this case it's referring to the 24 elders, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy. That means you are qualified, you are competent, you alone. The Lamb, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us 
to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we have taken the time the last three or four weeks to focus on that one key phrase in their praise, that the Lamb is worthy because of what He did on the cross. He redeemed us to God by His blood. And so we have paused to pay attention to the significance of His redemptive work for us as He died on the cross in our place on Calvary's Hill. And as we went to Jerusalem last year as we were approaching Jerusalem, coming into the city on the highway from the uh, from the west, and we began to see the suburbs, and we began to talk about what we were going to see in our anticipation. One thing that we thought about and that was voiced in the in the group was that even though we all have a fabulous appreciation for all that has been done in the history of this country and preserving our freedoms in the battlefields, and many of us are history on the trip we're history buffs and love. Uh, studying military battles and studying the history of America, going to the battlefields. I remember going to to Gettysburg and uh, Pittsburgh Landing. I think the other side called it Shiloh. Uh, Manassas, the other side called it something else. Uh, but we went to these places, and you go through the history, and you go back, and you understand how our freedom was purchased, and there is a tremendous uh, emotion often that accompanies that as you stand on these historic battlefields and you remember what has been uh, done there. You go to the Alamo, and when I was in Connecticut, we would at least every two or three years make a little pilgrimage over to San Antonio. You know you have to do that if you're a native Texan. You just can't go very long without uh, going over and seeing the Alamo and being reminded of, of what it cost to have our freedom. And as we were on that bus going into Jerusalem, we thought, you know, the battlefield of all battlefields, the place where freedom was truly purchased, was on that hill outside of the walls of Jerusalem when Jesus Christ died on the cross. That was the centerpiece of all battles when Satan was permanently defeated on the cross, and the penalty for sin was paid. And it's never a story that grows old or tiresome to think about what was done for us on the cross and to understand the great doctrines related to salvation because the more we study them, the more we come to learn the vast dimensions of our salvation. There's so much that had to take place uh, in order to save us because the penalties and the consequences of sin were so vast, so profound, so extensive that it truly impacted every aspect of creation, not just man's relationship to God. That was the primary issue because the penalty, the judicial penalty that God uh, told or warned Adam about was that on the day that you eat of the fruit, you will certainly die. And that death was not physical death. That death was a spiritual death, a separation from God. But the execution of that penalty, the immediate consequence of that act of rebellion, not only breached that relationship between Adam and God, not only uh, ended an aspect of his makeup that made it impossible for him to have a relationship with God. It not only uh, infected his entire being and corrupted his entire being with sin, but it had reverberating consequences throughout all of the physical realm of creation, not just on planet Earth, but throughout the entire entire universe. You can almost picture it in your mind like a wave that just began right there at the epicenter in the Garden of Eden and then just flowed out throughout the entire universe so that everything in this universe was affected to in some way by that curse. And we have studied this in recent weeks. And as we studied the concept of redemption last week as it relates to salvation, 
I pointed out that there were three things that are necessary for someone to have in order to spend eternity in heaven. So I'm going to give you about six points of review, and this is the first point, that we saw that there were three things that were necessary to spend eternity in heaven. We have to think very precisely about these things because salvation is something that is based on all these different dimensions, as I've said, that occurred on the cross. And the first is that the sin penalty had to be paid. We use the illustration of a barrier that came between man and God. This sin barrier, because God was absolute righteousness, he could not have fellowship with a creature that was less than righteousness. God exists in light, John tells us in 1 John. He is absolute perfection, absolute purity, and in him, John says, no darkness dwells. It is impossible for him to have any kind of relationship with that which is unrighteous, that which is evil, that which is, is, is sinful there. It is, it's impossible. It's like trying to mix oil and water. It just can't happen. Yet God, we're told in Scripture, loved mankind so much that he had a plan for a perfect salvation that was dependent not upon man but upon God. And God is the one who provided this uh, manifold solution. So we often talk about the barrier between man and God is a sin barrier, but there are different aspects to that sin barrier. It comprises not only the fact of sin itself, but the penalty of sin that man is now spiritually dead. There is something in his makeup that is no longer there that that has to do with his relationship with God. Furthermore, there's the character of God that God, in order to maintain his own integrity, cannot have fellowship with man, cannot have a solution uh, for man that does not adequately take care of or handle God's own righteousness so that God can't just brush it aside, he can't just wink at it, but there has to be a genuine resolution to this lack of righteousness problem on his part. Uh, spiritual death uh, is a problem for ongoing generations. They are born spiritually dead. They lack perfect righteousness. All of our righteousness is relative. God recognizes that we do relative good, good in comparison to one another. Jesus told his disciples, he said, you being evil, recognizing that man is born with a corrupted nature, he is evil. That doesn't mean that everything he does is evil, because Jesus went on to say, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. See, we do relative good. Man can be moral. Man can do good things, but they are not of such a quality that it measures up to the absolute perfect standard of God's righteousness, because they come from a corrupted root, which is our fallen nature which is our position in Adam. We are descendants of Adam, and we have received the imputation of his sin and his guilt, and that has to be resolved. So there are these, at least these six aspects to the sin problem that must be resolved. And there's much more as we get into these. There are many other facets to all of these problems, and they must be resolved in order for man to have salvation, to have a relationship with God. And all of these were taken care of by the work of Christ on the cross. Now, in this study that we're focusing on in in terms of the Lamb and redemption in Revelation 5, we're just looking at these two aspects, not the whole barrier, but just these two aspects related to the redemption price that Christ paid on the cross and the extent of that payment under the doctrine of unlimited atonement. So... I said last time that there are three things necessary to spend eternity in heaven. First, the sin penalty, the judicial penalty, has to be paid for. The fine, as it were, has to be paid for. And that fine was spiritual death. And that was taken care of by Christ on the cross when he died between 12 noon and 3 p.m. There was a spiritual death when the sins of mankind were imputed to him. And he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For at that time when God the Father was judicially imputing the sins of mankind, your sins and my sins, to Jesus Christ. He became sin for us. 
the scripture says, he who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf as our substitute, and during that time he paid the penalty. So the first thing that has to happen in order to have salvation spend eternity in heaven is that the sin penalty has to be paid. But two more things have to be taken care of. One is that we have to have perfect righteousness. As I pointed out in the barrier here, one problem is that we are minus R. We lack righteousness. So even though Christ pays the penalty on the cross, that doesn't give us perfect righteousness. The other aspect, the other thing, the third thing, is that spiritual death must be transformed into spiritual life. We are born spiritually dead, and we must have a, con- a conversion, a regeneration, a rebirth in order to be saved. That's what John, uh, Jesus was focusing on when he talked to Nicodemus there in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, whose name literally means uh, ruler of the, of the people, uh, he was a leader among the Jews. It's very possible that was a title and not his personal name. Uh, indications are from, I've heard those who have, who have done a tremendous amount of research in Jewish heritage, that it's very likely Nicodemus, who was the teacher, and the, the text says, of the Jews, was the leading theologian of that generation among the Pharisees in Jerusalem. He was the ultimate authority on Scripture, and he came to Jesus by night, and he asked Jesus what? Uh, he wanted to know who he was, and he was sort of beating around the bush, and Jesus just went straight to the point, and he said to uh, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And that is what Jesus meant. He's focusing on this one aspect, that there must be a rebirth on the part of the individual, and that can come only by uh, faith in Christ. So we see that there are these three aspects that need to be taken care of, the payment of the sin penalty, possession of perfect righteousness, and then spiritual death must be transformed to spiritual life. And that, uh, those last two only happen when a person puts their faith alone in Christ alone. What we're looking at here is the as- that first part, that the sin penalty has been truly paid for every single person in human history. Second point in terms of review was that Christ took care of this first problem by paying for our sins as a substitute. This is very important for where we're going this morning. Christ paid for our sins as a substitute. I would say as a genuine or real substitute. Third point, the other two are taken care of when we believe, when we trust in Christ as our Savior. When we believe in Him, that's when the other two things happen. So that, as I pointed out last time, and we'll show a little more today, is that when it comes to the great white throne judgment, the final judgment in history in Revelation chapter 20, the issue isn't going to be your sins. The issue isn't going to be uh, lack of obedience. The issue is going to be do you possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. Now, as far as we are concerned, who have already believed in Jesus Christ, that we will not be present at the great white throne judgment other than as witnesses because we will have already been raptured and judged at the judgment seat of Christ. But at the great white throne judgment, all unbelievers throughout human history will be there, and the issue will be, does their good works, does their righteousness merit the approval of God? And so all of their works are stacked up, and they have to meet the absolute standard of God's perfect righteousness. And, of course, no one can, no one's righteousness does, It is inadequate for, as God said in the Old Testament, Isaiah uh, 65, all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. There is an inability of man to be able to do that which merits the approval of God. So it is only when we put our faith alone in him that we receive Christ's perfect righteousness, and it is on the basis of his righteousness That we are saved. That is not something that is merited. It's not something that is earned. It's not something that is acquired over time through obedience, through participation in uh, sacraments, through any other human factor. It is something that happens at one time instantaneously when we trust Christ as our Savior. 
Christ's righteousness is imputed, it is credited, it is given to the individual. And that is known as the doctrine of imputation. And once we receive that righteousness of Christ, instantly and simultaneously, God as the judge of the universe declares us to be righteous. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. That's known historically as the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it is a doctrine that has been sadly lost in this generation. Few people teach it anymore. Few people even understand what it means. When I was teaching at the college uh, the last couple of years, on the first day I would usually ask students, to write down how they knew they were going to go to heaven, and I would ask them to explain briefly the doctrine of justification by faith. They couldn't do it. Only about half of them could come close to articulating the gospel clearly because they're coming out of so many churches where there's more of an emphasis on emotion, more of an emphasis on singing, more of an emphasis on uh, trying to in, uh, encourage people with motivational speeches than teaching them the truth of God's Word. And so uh, it is sad to say today that these great doctrines for which people died over the centuries, great martyrs of the faith who died in England, in France, in Switzerland, in Germany, in order to preserve these doctrines for us, uh, They've been lost in our generation. The fourth thing I pointed out by way of review is that the payment price for redemption was, is said in Scripture, to be his blood. There are various passages in Scripture that emphasize this uh, as we go through that. And we saw last time that the term blood of Christ is actually a figure of speech. It's called a metalepsis. That's the technical term. Uh, it's a, which is really a double metonymy. In this case, it involves a, what's called a synecdoche and a metonymy. Now, that's just technical uh, literary language. A synecdoche is the uh, one idea put for another idea. That is physical death put for the idea of, of uh, spiritual death. A metonymy are, is uh, a, one noun put for another. So blood is put for death. So when you talk about the shedding of blood... That is a phrase that stands for the loss of life. This goes back in the Old Testament to the very first death, which was when Cain killed Abel. He shed his blood. Later on, it's picked up in the language of the Noahic Covenant, that whenever uh, someone's blood is shed, whenever man sheds man's blood, then that person should also have his blood shed. And the point there is not that capital punishment is only for situations where blood is literally uh, shed, but for a violent type of death for uh, murder. And throughout the scriptures we see that this phrase, blood of Christ, or the shedding of blood, stands for a violent death. And the same is true when it comes to talking about uh, the blood of Christ. So the blood of Christ is the is the basis for and the price that was paid for us. Acts 20.28, he purchased with his blood. Romans 3.25, it's a propitiation by means of his blood. Romans 5.9, we're justified by means of his blood. Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption through his blood. Ephesians 2.13, we are brought near or reconciled by means of the blood. Colossians 1.20, Peace with God is made through the blood of his cross. Hebrews 9.14, the blood of Christ cleanses our conscience. These are just some of the verses that I put up last week. Hebrews uh, 9.22 is another passage emphasizing the uh, that it is without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Fifth point by, by way of review is that just before Christ died physically, he made a statement on the cross saying, it is finished. Now, we miss some of it in the English, but in the Greek it's a perfect tense verb, uh, to telestai, indicating that uh, what is done had already been done. It is a finished work at that point. It was completed action. Therefore, his physical death was not that which paid the penalty for our sins. It was that spiritual death, that separation from God, that took place between 12 noon and 3 p.m. 
And finally, point six, in terms of review, the redemption price that was paid was paid by a perfect human being who alone could die as our substitute. Then last time we went through the blood of Christ, we didn't finish the whole doctrine, so just to just kind of review the initial, I think it was four points. First of all, the phrase blood of Christ or his, his blood or the phrase the blood of the Lamb is a common biblical phrase describing the death of Christ. It's used five times in Revelation and ten times in the book of Hebrews. This is a common biblical idiom, as it were, for the death of Christ. Second point we, I made was that, uh, unfortunately, this phrase is misunderstood. Back in the mystical Middle Ages in the Roman Catholic Church, it was thought that angels actually carried the literal blood of Jesus into heaven to a heavenly altar, and that it, it has a light, the blood itself of Christ, the hemoglobin, all of the, the properties of the physical blood, the red uh, blood cells and white blood cells, all had something to do with, with saving people. If you saw the film Ben-Hur, which was a, a pretty good movie, is a good book written by uh, General Lew Wallace, who was a Civil War general, who then, after the Civil War, was appointed as the uh, territorial governor for the territory of New Mexico, brought an end to the uh, cattle wars there that involved uh, Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett and several others. And he it was out to disprove Christianity, but in the process of his historical investigation of the claims of Christ, he came to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wrote the novel uh, Ben-Hur to be a, a way of explaining the gospel to people. But he, he bought into this sort of Catholic rendition of the blood, the literal blood, and he pictures that. And you saw it in the film there at the end when Ben-Hur's uh, mother and sister who have uh, been uh, infected with leprosy are coming near where the cross is. There's a thunderstorm. That's how Hollywood wants to picture the darkness around the cross, as if it was a, a normal thunderstorm. It was a supernatural darkness. But because of that, the blood of Christ gets washed off the cross, and it's running down in rivulets down the hill, and they touch it, and they become healed of their leprosy. That's that kind of mystical idea that is picked up from the uh, heretical idea that it's the physical death and it's the physical blood of Christ that paid the penalty for sin. Third point last week, I pointed out that following the basic rules of word study, we see that the, uh, the, uh, the phrase shedding of blood uh, is a phrase that refers to a violent death. It's used that way throughout Scripture. Fourth point is that when our Lord died on the cross, he shed very little physical blood. Crucifixion didn't involve a lot of bleeding. They would put uh, nails usually into the wrist just below the hand, which is where the, the bone of the, the hand would hang on that, on that nail. And they would just put, put one nail in, in each wrist, one in uh, the feet. Often they would put the feet together and just drive one nail between the two of them. And that is the only thing that would cause much shedding of blood. Of course, Jesus was already bleeding a little bit from the beatings and other, other things of that nature, but he wasn't bleeding to death. Often the Romans, in terms of torture, would try to extend the death of crucifixion on a cross two or three days so that the victims would suffer. They, often those who were in charge of the execution were extremely sadistic and would do whatever they could to extend the life of the individual on the cross. But in the case of Jesus and the two thieves, they were being crucified late on a Friday. And as sundown was approaching, it was necessary, according to Jewish law, to get the bodies off the cross because Sabbath was approaching that evening, and so they had to rush the death. And at the end, they, the uh, Romans soldiers at the at the foot of these crosses killed the broke the legs of the two thieves, so that they would no longer be able to hold themselves up, and they would would uh, be forced. Their bodies would be forced to go down, and their uh, the pressure from their internal organs against their uh, 
the diaphragm would cause them to suffocate and not be able to breathe, and so they would die. But when they came to our Lord, he had already died. And in order to make sure he was dead, one of the Roman soldiers thrust his spear up uh, through his abdominal cavity. It pierced his diaphragm into the uh, area of, uh, surrounding his heart. And John, the gospel writer, says that blood and water came out. Now, we know from science today that that, would, that, that, that was a separation of blood into uh, the red corpuscles and the white corpuscles. You had blood and, and, and serum coming out, lymph coming out, and that indicated that death had already taken place at that time. So the piercing of his body by the sword did not kill him, but it revealed that he was physically dead. He was already dead. He hadn't swooned or passed out on the cross, some of these other strange theories that come along. And so that he was already already dead. He had already accomplished all that was needed on the cross, at which time he died physically. So that brought us to point five, that the term blood of Christ was a figure of speech for a substitutionary atonement on the cross. Now, I don't think I got to the last three or four points. Point number six was the substitutionary death of Christ was to pay a penalty for sin. The penalty was not physical death. The penalty was spiritual death. That's the penalty that was enacted in the Garden of Eden. Adam was separated from the Father. Adam and Eve could not have a relationship when God came to spend time with them in the afternoon, which was the standard procedure, they ran and hid. That indicated that something had happened in their relationship. They were spiritually dead. Since physical death is not the penalty for sin, for they did not die physically for another 930 years. Adam was 930 years of age when he died. That was a consequence of the spiritual death, not the penalty for sin. So Jesus pays the penalty for sin, which is spiritual spiritual death. Therefore, point number seven, since it was not his physical death or physical bleeding that was efficacious for salvation, but his spiritual death, then the physical blood does not save. Point number eight, we have to remember that the imagery here derives from the Old Testament sacrifices. The Old Testament sacrifices, it wasn't the, you would take an animal, you'd take the animal, put the animal on the altar, and then you would cut its throat, and there would be a literal bleeding. But as we're told in Hebrews 9.22, according to the law, almost all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. But we're also told that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away Sent. It wasn't the physical bleeding of the animals that solved their sin problem. It was simply a picture of what would happen in the future related to the death of the Messiah on the cross. In the sacrifice, in the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the animals were killed violently in four of the five Levitical uh, sacrifices. This violent death represents the kind of death that the Savior would experience. And finally, point number nine, the physical death of the Messiah signified the completion of his spiritual substitutionary work, and it was necessary for his resurrection and to indicate the Father's acceptance of his sacrifice and that he had conquered sin and death. Physical death being the uh, most extreme of the consequences of sin, for Jesus Christ to die physically, then to be raised from the dead, physically resurrected, demonstrated that his death on the cross, his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross, gave us victory over physical death, and his resurrection was the first or the down payment called the first fruits in scriptures, the down payment of all other resurrections. And so on the basis of his physical bodily resurrection, we have confidence that we too will have a future physical bodily resurrection when uh, the Lord comes at the rapture. If we are still alive, 
We won't go through that death process. We'll just get an immediate shift to a resurrection body. Okay, that covers the payment price, the blood. So we know that we have been redeemed, and the idea there is we've been purchased. We have been bought with a price, Paul said. Therefore, we are not our own. We are Christ. That's the application. We were purchased by his blood. That is the the the, the means of payment by his death on the cross. But there's another aspect to that that is very important to understand, and that is the extent of that death. Did Jesus die for all? How did he die for all? Did he die for all? Did he die for some? Did he he die only for the elect? And this has been a, a debate down through the centuries. And earlier I pointed out that the solution to the sin problem is what is known theologically as unlimited atonement. So I want to conclude this uh, sort of uh, side study on redemption by looking at the doctrine of unlimited atonement. We probably won't get through all of it today, but we will finish up uh, next time. First of all, the question that has been raised down through the ages is the question, did Christ die for only the elect, or did he die for all? That's the question. Uh, It's phrased in terms of, did Christ's death have an unlimited value? Did he die for every person, every single uh, individual, or did he die only for those that God in his omniscience uh, chose to be saved, only for a few? So the terminology is unlimited atonement versus limited atonement. Uh, in, in the historic debate between those who are known as Calvinists and those who are known as Arminians, uh, Calvinism was uh, codified at the Senate of Dort, <clears throat> Senate of Dort in Holland, in the early 17th century, and usually it's remembered by the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, T for total depravity, U for uh, unconditional election, and then that middle initial L for limited atonement, Uh, I for irresistible grace, and P for the perseverance of the saints. That's how people think of Calvinism, and those would refer to the five points of Calvinism. You may have heard uh, somebody use that terminology. Sometimes folks will come along and say, well, I'm not a five-point Calvinist, I'm a four-point Calvinist. And that's a very popular common position that there are numerous uh, theologians who would identify themselves as a four-point Calvinist. And the difference is not the last point, it's the middle point. It's whether you hold to limited or unlimited atonement. That is the, that is the distinction. So point number one is simply the question, did Christ die only for the elect or did he die for all? Point number two, most high Calvinists, and that's the correct terminology, high Calvinists or hyper-Calvinists. Now the difference between a high Calvinist and a hyper-Calvinist is that a high Calvinist will hold to a, what's called a superlapsarian five-point Calvinism, but he will believe that you should make an offer of the gospel and evangelize those who are lost. A hyper-Calvinist is someone who doesn't believe you should ever give the gospel to anybody that God, if God wants them to be saved, God will do it without any help from you or me. That's almost a direct quote from a very famous uh, 18th century English Baptist Calvinist in response to uh, William Carey. William Carey is often referred to as the father of modern missions, Uh, William Carey was an English Baptist in the 1700s who went to India and took the gospel to India and established an extraordinary ministry to Hindus in India, taking them uh, the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. When he returned to England and he was presenting his ministry to the uh, English Baptists, one of the uh, hyper-Calvinist English Baptists, most of the English Baptists at that time were hyper-Calvinists, stood up and told him, said, Son, uh, if God wants the Indians to be saved, he will do so without any help from you or me. They did not believe the, in personal evangelism. So that's the difference. Just so you know the difference in terminology, often people th- use the term hyper-Calvinism without knowing that it has a uh, uh, a, a technical meaning, and they usually refer to anybody who's a little bit more 
uh, hyper, a little bit more Calvinistic than they are as a hyper-Calvinist, but that's not true. It has a specific technical meaning. High Calvinists are those who believe in five-point Calvinism. They believe that Christ died only for the elect. Most moderate Calvinists hold to unlimited atonement. Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, Dallas Seminary, would fit into that category as, as well as many others. They would believe that Christ died for all without exception rather than all without distinction. That's some of the little technical language that they use. See, if somebody says, oh, I believe Christ died for all without distinction, that means that he believes Christ died for Jews and Gentiles, but only for the elect Jews and only for the elect Gentiles. It's the phrase, uh, Christ died for all without exception, refers to all, uh, every single human being. Okay, now, under the third point, the problem that really undergirds this whole thing, as was pointed out to me by a friend of mine who was a couple of years ahead of me at seminary, I went up to visit him his first year, and we were immediately got into a discussion over this, and at that time I wasn't even sure whether it was a tulip or a daisy or a rose, but um, uh, he was trying to explain all of these issues to me, and he said, well, what you need to do is read this particular article written by a theologian on the importance of substitution. And I thought, hmm, oh, I guess so. And so, you know, there, that began my, some of my more technical education. But the real meaning is substitution, in which... In, in what sense did Christ die for you? In what sense was it a substitution? See, the problem that high Calvinists come across is that if Christ really died for you, then why aren't you saved? I mean, if Christ paid the penalty for your sin, then you ought to be going to heaven because your, your sin penalty is already paid. See, that's why I started off uh, reminding you and reemphasizing those three things that have to happen in order to have eternal life. It's not enough to have the sin penalty paid. There has to be an imputation of righteousness, and there has to be a regeneration. But see, if you don't understand that, then if you think Christ paid for the sins of everybody, then they ought to, you ought to end up in some sort of universalism that everybody will automatically go to heaven because Christ actually paid for their sins. So it comes back to that idea of in what sense did he truly pay for your sins as a substitute. So the limited atonement people would say it was a real substitution because that's they're honest with the language of the Greek text. It's a real substitution. It's a genuine substitution. But they can't get past the fact that, that well, that would indicate in their minds that everybody would get saved. So their solution is that on, Christ only was a real substitute for those who were saved. Then you have what's called the classic four-point position, the classic unlimited position, otherwise known as Amaraldianism, based on Moses Amiro, who was a uh, 17th century French uh, Calvinist theologian. And he said that the, the payment for sin was unlimited, but it was conditional or hypothetical. In other words, he paid for the sins of everybody, but it's only theirs actually if they trust in Christ. And you may have heard it expressed that way. That's how most people express uh, unlimited atonement. Christ died for your sins, but it's only actually yours if, uh, if you accept it. But see, then you have a problem that the high Calvinists have pointed out, which is that, that well, that renders the language of the Scripture a little bit nebulous because the language of the Scripture is of a real substitution. Christ paid for your sins. He really paid for them. He didn't hypothetically pay for them. He truly paid for them. So under, see, under classic, my problem with classic Amaraldianism is that let's say I go through life and I'm not a believer and under a, under a uh, Amaraldian situation, I end up in the lake of fire the guy next to me could say, well, did Christ pay for your sins? I would say, no, he didn't. Hmm, sounds like limited atonement to me. So when you end up at the end with classic Amaraldianism, uh, those who are in the lake of fire are paying for their sins in the lake of fire, and Christ didn't actually pay for them on the cross. So it ends up being a default limited atonement position, in my view. 
So, my view is that it is an unlimited atonement, but with a real substitution. We get back to the importance of understanding substitution. That Christ paid the sins for all, so that sin is no longer the issue. John 3.18, he who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has sinned. So it said, no. It says, because he has not believed. See, the issue isn't sin anymore because Christ paid for the sin. It's paid for. It's not the issue. The issue is belief in Christ. If you don't believe in Christ, you're still unrighteous, so you'll die in your sins. You don't have perfect righteousness, and you're not regenerate. You're still spiritually dead. So you're still going to die in your sins, but you're not going to die for your sins. Christ paid the penalty for the sins. So it is an unlimited atonement with a real substitution. Now, the fourth point. Scripture clearly teaches that the atonement of Christ was unlimited. It was for all. Let's go to... Well, I didn't put it up there on a slide. Isaiah 53.6. Isaiah 53.6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, this is an Old Testament prophecy of the work that would be done by the Messiah. Now, let's just stop a minute and look at the universal terms that are used here. All we like sheep have gone astray. If he just means a few by the word all, or most by the word all, then we don't have uh, universal condemnation, do we? We have the same problem we get over into the New Testament. It says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all in both these passages have to refer to everyone without exception. Every human being is under condemnation. So in that first phrase, all we like sheep have gone astray must mean that every human being has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Second, he says, we have turned everyone. Okay, so we have a second clause with a, in, in synonymous parallelism where everyone is used to explain all. So all means everyone. So it's pretty clear at this point that unless you're a jailhouse lawyer, you've got uh, you got a problem. All has to mean everyone. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Not on most of us, not on just the elect, but he's laid on him the iniquity of us all. Related to this, John Calvin, who did not believe in limited atonement, by the way, wrote, quote, I approve... Of the, let me see, did I, get, I thought I got this up here as a slide. Didn't I? Was that it? There we go. I approve of the ordinary reading that he alone bore the punishment of many, because on him was laid the guilt of the whole world. It is evident from other passages, and especially from the fifth chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, that many sometimes denotes all. Isn't that interesting? Jean Calvin believed that when it talks about even the word many in Scripture is in contrast to the few, not in contrast to all. He understood that many meant all, and all means all, not some. Now, I'm not talking about petroleum for you Texans out there, you know, where you, all, all is that black stuff in the ground. He died for all, for everyone, without exception. So, the first verse I want to look at, and it's probably as far as we'll get today, is Isaiah, Isaiah 53. All have gone astray, and he died for all. The same group of people must be included in the all that begins the verse as the all that ends the verse. And this is the same meaning that we have when we come to the New Testament, that in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That God is God isn't playing word games. He's not saying, well, I, 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 theoretically I'd like everybody to be saved, but on the other hand, I'm only going to uh, die for some of them. Now, he had a plan to execute that which he would 
he completely desired. See, Jesus says the same kind of thing when he's weeping for Jerusalem in Matthew 23:37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You see, Jesus wants all those unbelieving, rebellious Jews, the ones who are in two or three days going to be uh, calling for his death. He wants to gather all of them. He, want, he has a plan that is uh, inclusive of all. But the reason all are not saved is not because he only died for some, but because they are not willing to trust him. They have rejected him. They have not believed in him. That is the point of John 3.18. See, we'll, next week we'll spend a little more time on this. But in John 3.16 and 17, we read, For God so loved the world, and the world in John refers to the, all the inhabitants of the planet. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then John 3.18 says that that salvation is based on belief. It's up to the individual. It's up to you. If you have believed that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then the, then the benefits of what he did are applied to you. His righteousness is imputed to you, and at that instant you are declared righteous, you're declared just, and you are regenerated. You have eternal life which can never, never be lost with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we can study these things in your word, come to a greater appreciation for all that was done for us on the cross, for our salvation, come to a greater appreciation of our inability to do anything to merit your favor, and that you base salvation on the merit of Christ. And we have that simply by faith alone, and that faith itself is non-meritorious, but it's simply the ability to believe. It is the object of the faith that saves, and our object is Jesus Christ and him alone. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you rely upon him and him alone, excluding all works, all ritual, all other human uh, factors, then you have eternal life, and it is yours, and it can never be lost. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things that we have studied today, that we may gain a greater appreciation for the fact that we have been bought with a price, and we are not our own, but Christ's. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.